And just one quick announcement before we get started. Um, there are a couple of people who are interested in membership, and I'd like to have a we'd like to have a new members class. Um, and the dates uh, would be an all day Saturday affair, um, be November twelfth or December third. Um, so if uh, you'd like to join in with that, let me know what date you can be available. We'll try to get everybody together and. Uh, Dave Silvernell's done a real great job on um, making up book with books, and we can get those together. And there's uh, usually free pizza, I understand. Um, so we'll have a have a good time. Uh, but uh, check your calendars: November 12th or December 3rd. As we come to God's word, let's uh, come together in prayer. Lord, what a what a joy it is to be able to gather together and to study your truth, your word. Lord, I truly like the the line in that song. There's no sense pointing fingers unless you're pointing at the truth. I pray that you would point each one of us to your truth by your spirit. That we might leave here better prepared to serve you as brothers and sisters in Christ. I praise you and thank you in his name. Most of you know that uh, many years ago in another lifetime in a land far, far away, uh, I spent 20 years in the submarine force. Uh, actually, it was broken service. I spent uh, three years, three months, and uh, served in submarines, uh, beginning with the World War II submarine USS Archerfish, diesel submarine, uh, Sea Poacher and Grenadier, both diesel submarines, and got out, became a police officer, and and later went back in. When I went back in, the Navy had changed quite a bit. Uh, Admiral Rickover had succeeded in bringing in nuclear power uh, for the submarines, um, and many of them were nuclear-powered at that point. There was a real concern. In fact, I remember sitting in on a lecture that um, if the situation continued as it had statistically continued over the years, that within 15 years, there would be a major nuclear accident on board a nuclear submarine. That means a reactor meltdown or explosion and catastrophic things. Consequently, the Navy was very, very concerned about that. And so those people who operated the nuclear reactor plant um, went to, I believe it was a year and a half uh, school, very, very intense. I remember living next door to some of those guys and you know, they'd spend three or four hours at home. The rest of the time, they'll spend in school. Um, and they had their own Bible. Um, it was called a reactor plant manual. It was about this thick. <laughs> um, and everything they did was done by the book. That was their law, their Bible. And consequently, the nukes, as they were called, uh, the nuclear trained people who lived back there with the reactor reactor plant, um, sort of looked down with disdain upon us forward pukes, as they called us. Uh, those who didn't have the training 
those who didn't go by the Bible. Um, and there was, even though you're one crew, uh, and you were proud of that, um, there was this dissension, and you kept trying to goad one another, as submariners were wont to do. That's a lot like the situation here in Rome. Um, the Jews came from this legalistic background. The historical issue in view here is Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and that church was made up of Christians from a Jewish background. They had been raised, they had been taught, they had been living the law. They did everything in accordance with the law of the Bible. But there were also Christians who had come from a pagan background. They didn't have that training. They didn't have all of that law surrounding what they were doing. Each of these groups had different views of the right way to serve the Lord. They were both members of the congregation, just like the submariners were members of one crew. But they had different ideas about what the right way to do things was. The Jewish Christians had a high regard for the law. Therefore, they were concerned about whether the meat they, they were eating had been sacrificed to idols. Or whether it was kosher. Uh, whether or not a priest was there and actually observed the, the killing of the animal and made sure that the blood was drained and everything was done uh, cleanly uh, in a clean way in accordance with the law. Since many of them, since they couldn't be sure in a lot of cases whether that meat was kosher or whether it had been sacrificed to idols, uh, they chose to eat only vegetables. Verse 2, one man has faith to eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only out of concern for doing it in accord with the law. They were also concerned to observe the feast days required in the law. Verse 5, one man regards one day above another. They believe they should continue to keep the feast days required in the law. Uh, we were studying Sunday school this morning that there were three days uh, during the year in which every male in uh, Israel was required to go to wherever God's name was, wherever the Ark of the Covenant or to his temple. They were required to go there and they were required to worship God. It was Passover, the Feast of Booths, or the Harvest, uh, the Day of Atonement. But there were also new moon festivals and Sabbath festivals. And so these people had been brought up with that and they were concerned about keeping those feast days. The Christians from a Gentile background had no such regard for food or feast days. They said, you don't have to do this. This isn't required. All we need is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So the differences had created division in the congregation at Rome. And Paul is dealing with that. Paul has already taught in Romans, verses 12, uh, chapter 12, 3 through 8, that all Christians are the body of Christ. That each and every member is a part of that body, and each and every member has been given gifts by God to be used to build up that body of Christ. To discharge their debt of love to Christ. In Romans 12, 9 through 13, Paul teaches that Christians are to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. In Romans 12, 14 through 21, he teaches that we're to love even our enemies as Christ loved us who were hostile toward him. 
In Romans 13, 1 through 7, he teaches that we are to honor those in authority over us, to behave even toward them in a loving way. And in Romans 13, 8 through 10, he teaches that we're to love our neighbor. Not to worry about who our neighbor is, but to, to behave as a neighbor toward others. And in Romans 13, 11 through 14, he teaches that we are to live in the light of eternity. Not day to day, but looking at the end, at the reality uh, that is ours in Christ. And if you didn't get to hear that sermon last week, get the tape because it was great. In these verses, Paul is teaching the church at Rome some very practical ways to work out how to love one another. First, he says, you must accept the one who is weak in faith. Paul is not referring to a Christian who is weak in salvation. The brother is in fact saved. He is in the faith. But he's referring to one who is weak in his understanding of the liberty that is his because of his salvation. He is nevertheless in the faith. Leon Morris in his commentary says, Paul is not referring to basic trust in Christ. He assumes that is present. For this weak person is a member of the church, not an outsider who it is hoped will be converted. What is being discussed is the way the believer should live, the actions that are permissible or required. And John Stott says Paul is referring to a weakness neither of will nor of character, but of faith. It is a weakness in in assurance that one's faith permits one to do certain things. So if we're trying to picture a weaker brother or sister, we must not envisage a vulnerable Christian easily overcome by temptation. Thoughts says that's not the case. But a sensitive Christian full of indecision and scruples. What the weak lack is not strength of self-control but liberty of conscience. These were believers. They had faith. They had been given that gift of faith by God himself. But that faith did not give them the assurance that they needed to eat meat with thankfulness or not to celebrate the Jewish feast days. The word that we translate accept means to take to oneself what Paul is saying is that we, we should take that weaker brother to ourselves as we would take food to ourselves. To, to lead them aside, to admit them to friendship and fellowship, not to look down on them. John Stott says the word means to welcome into one's fellowship and into one's heart. It implies the warmth and kindness of genuine love. It is used of Philemon giving Onesimus the same welcome he would have given to Paul. And even of Jesus, who promises to welcome his people into his presence in heaven. However, it does not mean unconditional acceptance. Stott says, for though God's love is indeed unconditional, his acceptance of us is not. His acceptance of us depends on our repentance and our faith in Jesus Christ. So, therefore, we don't 
accept someone who's living in sin. We teach them they should be in a relationship with Christ. We welcome them into into the congregation to hear the word. But they're not part of the fellowship. We need to realize that we need to give them the gospel to teach them. Paul says the strong must not regard with contempt the weak. Verse 3. And realize that Paul regards himself as one of the strong. Uh, He says in Romans 15 verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. The word translated regard with contempt is a word which means not out of man, woman, or anything else. It therefore means that the one being referred to is nothing. He's contemptible. As the nuclear submarine crew would refer to the nukes or the forward pukes. They were contemptible. They weren't like me. They were different. Part of the same crew. But they were different. We are not to have that kind of an attitude for those who are in the church. Additionally, the weak must not judge the strong. The word that we translate judge means to criticize or condemn. The force here uh, is to believe that the other person is condemned to hell for breaking the law. You see, these from a Jewish background realize that the law said if you do this and you don't do that, you're condemned to hell. And so they were looking at these stronger brothers who were not doing these things of the law, who were not observing these feast days and new moons, festivals, and they were saying, you guys are going to go to hell because you're not doing what the law says. They were putting themselves in the place of God. Well, we look at that and we say, well, that doesn't have a whole lot of cultural relevance to us. And that was way back then. That was the church at Rome. But it truly is relevant to our culture today and our churches today. We must accept into fellowship even those with whom we disagree. As long as they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We may have disagreements with them in minor matters. But literally, we are commanded to accept the one who is weak in faith, not to doubtful disputations, is the, 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 the literal translation. We're not to accept others for the purpose of arguing with them to our position. As long as they can state that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as long as they can say with truth, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I know for a fact that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. That person is a brother or sister in Christ, whether or not they believe exactly as we do. Disputations here are doubtful points, the New English Bible translates it, or disputable matters, as the New International Version says. The theologians say they're unimportant, or adiaphora is the name. Such things as what time of day to worship? Do we worship at 8 o'clock in the morning or 1130 in the morning? Do we worship on Sunday night or Sunday morning? Those things are audiophora. It's not in the Bible. The Bible never addresses that. What the building should look like. 
Uh, should it be in a cross? Should it have a steeple? Uh, should it be white or brick or stone? The Bible doesn't say. Matter of fact, there weren't any individual churches until the 4th century after Christ. People met in homes. House churches. What color should the carpet be? The big one. Oh. It's irrelevant. But it splits churches over and over again. Adiaphora are matters on which Scripture does not clearly pronounce. And we are not to pass judgment in indisputable or unimportant matters. We must judge, however, other Christians' behavior in regard to Scripture because that is commanded in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so what Paul is saying is like the words of the song. Don't point fingers unless you're pointing at the truth. If someone is doing something that is not in accord with Scripture, and that person says, I'm a Christian, then we need to go to them and say, brother, wait a minute. You say you're a Christian, but you're not behaving in accordance with the truth, the Word of God. Because we want to bring them back. The interesting part about Matthew 18 Famous passage that everybody knows about in, in, on church discipline. The really interesting thing to me is that just before that passage is the parable of the lost sheep. You see, the idea in Matthew 18 is not to get out your 17 pound Schofield reference Bible and hammer it out. The idea of Matthew 18 is to bring the lost sheep back into the fold in love. The problem in the church at Rome exists in our churches today. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says, to use our common expression, the problem is that Christians are always dumping on one another. Instead of getting on with living their own lives as best they can to the glory of God, or, which is also necessary, living so as to win non-believers to Christ, they are wasting their time trying to find fault with one another. They do not trust what God is doing in the other Christian. We judge others by how well they conform to what we are doing. If we drink wine, we accept them because they also drink wine. If we don't drink wine, we look down on them as dirty, rotten sinners because they're drunkards. If we hold a strict view of the Sabbath, we judge those who do not hold such a view to be sinful. If we hold a loose view of the Sabbath, we regard with contempt those who hold a strict view. That happens even in our denomination among brother pastors. I can remember years ago uh, in California sitting down with several pastors and we were talking about things that were happening in our churches and 
I said, yeah, we have this program in our church where uh, each of the elders on rotating Sundays um, take visitors out to lunch. One of the pastors looked at me. I mean, it's like, what? You go to a restaurant on the Sabbath? I said, yeah. And, and it was very obvious he was just appalled by that. He said, well, what about the command for making others work on the Sabbath? I said, excuse me, um, did you turn on the light when you got up this morning? Yeah. Uh, did you brush your teeth this morning? Turn on the water? Yeah. Well, then you made people work on the Sabbath. My point was not to condemn them, but to make them think that rather than condemn somebody who wasn't thinking the way he did, he needed to think about what was really going on. See, we shouldn't condemn others who are brother pastors or brothers and sisters in Christ. Boy says, if you're making the other person's acceptance depend on what he or she is doing, you are operating on the basis of salvation by works and denying the gospel. Now, we need to judge others by the truth. But we should not be basing our acceptance of others on what they are doing or not doing. In many of our churches, we capitulate to the weaker brother. Weiss, in his uh, word studies in the Greek New Testament, says a distinguished minister once remarked, the weak brother is the biggest bully in the universe. Because we have been taught not to offend the weaker brother. And that's true. But you see, what we fail to understand is the command that we'll get to in Romans 15 too. Let each of us please his neighbor for the good to edification. See, when we run across a brother who we think is not doing it in Scripture, rather than condemning that person for not doing it our way, what we ought to do is sit down with that person and say, let's look at what Scripture really says. Let's point fingers at the truth. We might both learn something. We should use the opportunity to teach the weaker brother so that he can enjoy the liberty of salvation in Christ. The biblical reasons. John Stott says that Paul presents four theological truths in this passage for accepting your brother. First, you must accept him because God has accepted him. The same word is used in the command to accept the one who is weak. It says that God has accepted him. The word again means to take to oneself, to admit to friendship. If God has accepted them to friendship with himself, who are you to judge your brother? Verse 10. The you is emphatic. You. Who are you to judge your brother? If God has already accepted him. If God looked with favor and acceptance upon someone, who am I to regard that person with contempt? That's ludicrous. If you do, you're putting yourself above God. Is already accepted. Second, Stott says that Christ died and rose again 
to be Lord of all. Verses 4 through 9. If someone is a Christian, that person will answer to Christ for their behavior, not to you. Or me. What right do you have to judge how that person is doing in the unimportant issues not addressed by Scripture? We always have to make that distinction. We judge other Christians by the standard of God's Word. We don't judge them by the stuff that's not in there. A Christian is one who has been accepted by Christ and made a part of his body. It is the height of stupidity and arrogance to not include a part of your body because you don't like the way it looks or behaves. It's like having feet that I that disgust me. And, and I don't like them, so I'm going to cut them off. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty gross, isn't it? Pretty funny. Pretty stupid. But you see, that's what it's like. If someone is truly a part of the body of Christ, they've been given gifts, they've been made a part of that body to build all of us up. And it's really nuts to cut them off. To not accept we used to have a saying when I was growing up, it'd be like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Gotta be kidding. Fourth, you welcome him because each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Paul is not saying that God will judge between us based on our deeds. Stott says we have no warrant to climb onto the bench, place our fellow human beings in the dock, start pronouncing judgment and passing sentence because God alone is judge and we are not. We must accept our brother because we all shall stand before the judgment seat of God. First, I want to say what this statement does not mean. It does not mean that we will have to explain to God why we did certain things. God already knows or he wouldn't be God. God already knows why we did them. God already knows that we did them. He was there. God is omnipresent. Think about this the next time you're tempted to sin. God is there watching. He already knows all our deeds and why we did them. It also does not mean that we will be judged by God for our actions, whether they're good enough to get us into heaven. We have already been judged in Christ. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, if you're in Christ, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You who name the name of Christ, you have committed yourselves to Christ, you are in heaven, in God's reality, seated at the right hand of God the Father, and no one, not you, not Satan, not anybody else, not God himself, can remove you. Because that's the promise of God. What it does mean is that you and I are not responsible 
for the sins of others. Adam Clark's commentary says, We shall not, at the bar of God, be obliged to account for the conduct of each other. James Boyce in his commentary says, We are accountable for all things before God. That may sound like a contradiction, but bear with me. Boy says, we are accountable for every word we have spoken. Matthew 12, verse 36, Jesus says, And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. Every careless word. That doesn't mean that you'll be judged whether or not you're Christian or not Christian. But it does mean that every careless word you or I have ever spoken when we stand before God, that's going to be brought up. And we will be ashamed. But we'll also be saved. And we'll realize what God has truly done for us in covering those sins. Malachi 3.16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And the book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Isn't that? Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and Yahweh gave attention. He heard it. And he wrote it down in the book. And it'll all be there when we stand before him. We are accountable for the talents that have been given to us by God. Each one of you who names the name of Jesus Christ has been given gifts by God for the purpose of glorifying him and building up his body, the church. I would submit that if you consider yourself a Christian and you're not involved in some Christian way in this part of the congregation that is his body, then you are not using the gifts that God has given you for his glory. James Boy says, whatever you have, it has been given to you by God and you are responsible to God for how you use it. Are you using it for him? If you do not know the answer to that question, you need to ask God to show you what you can do that will make a difference for him in this life and in eternity. Voices we are we are accountable for how we use our money. Jesus spoke an awful lot about money. He said in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Boyce asked the question in his commentary, what if I, what would I discover if I were to examine your checkbook? 
what percentage of your income would I find given to the support of your local church? The average in the Christian churches of America is around 3%. If you give anything to your church or charitable causes, boy says, you probably consider yourself to be very generous. But would that judgment hold up to a really objective scrutiny? Would God be satisfied with your priorities? Boyce points out that Donald Gray Barnhouse in his commentary refers to a cartoon in which a farmer is sitting at a table and he has nine giant potatoes in front of him. And there's a tenth potato is tied to God, sitting off by itself. The isolated potato is marked the Lord's portion. And the caption expresses the words of the farmer who is saying, I don't see how any fellow could be mean enough to give less. Nine millions in front of him, one for the Lord. How can anybody be so mean as to give less than that? After all, boy says, but I find myself thinking, nine for me and one for God? Is even that a strong enough priority? When we've been given so much and have such abundance, is that all we can do, should do, or would do if we really love the Lord with all our hearts and minds and souls? And we're aware that one day we will have to give an accounting of how we've spent our money and our time and our talents. After all, 10% isn't very much if we can afford 30 or 40 or 50. Voices, we're also accountable for how we have used our time. Do you use your time to help others, to tell others about Jesus, to study his word and learn more about him. Do you have a devotional time? Do you have a prayer time? If you're a husband, do you have a time for teaching your children and your wife as a priest in your family? Or do you waste time like most of us? Or do you work all the time? Are you working only for yourself in the things you would like to have in this life? Where's your treasure? Finally, we must accept our brother because Christ has accepted us. And if he has truly accepted us, that lays upon us the responsibility for behaving in all these ways that we've been going over. Even though we were hostile to God, even though we were rebellious and argumentative, Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again so that he might be our Lord and Savior. So that when Satan, the accuser, stands up before God and opens his books and says, so-and-so did thus and so on such and such a date. God opens up his book and says, no, I don't see that. All I see is the perfect, righteous work of 
my son, Jesus Christ. We must accept our brother because Christ has accepted us. And if he is willing to accept you and I, if he's willing to accept even those who are different from him, and we are completely other, we are completely different than God. And yet, he laid aside the esteem and, and the glory that was his and came down and took on human flesh and lived the life you and I couldn't live and died the death you and I deserve that we might stand before him in eternity. If he was willing to do that, can we not esteem and accept others who may not agree completely with us in the unimportant things of life? So long as all point to the truth and say Jesus is my Lord and Savior and you are my brother and sister if you believe that. Let's pray together.